I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome, everyone, to the Playing Footsie Show. Paul's not here this week, but I have got Steve D with me. This week, it's just the two of us. Just the two of us. It's been a pretty rough week in markets for me. I was looking at my one-week charts before we came on air. I've got five stocks that aren't red. Uh, they are a green barely on this week. Uh, how about you, Steve? Anything at all good happened for you in markets this week? Uh, no, nothing. Um, it's been a pretty terrible week, to be honest. Uh, I think I've been down pretty much every day, and I've had a, a little outlier every day as well of twenty percent or something along those lines. So it's been uh, it's been a bit of a shocking day. They're all taking turns to fall. I think what we are seeing is. Uh, just sort of the liquidity drain from the market, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting time to be a buyer of stocks. I just wish I had more money, which I assume is probably how everybody feels at the moment. Definitely how I'm feeling here. I'm trying to think about ways to get as hold of as much money as quickly as I can without doing anything silly like getting into debt or something like that. But I'm trying to work out. It feels like a really good time to be getting ready to buy in markets. And I guess that's the way to think about it, right, as a kind of buyer's market. Uh, it's definitely not a seller's market. So something interesting happened to me uh, this week. I got uh, an email from one of my brokers, one of the brokerage firms that I use, um, and it's to do with my holding meta platforms. It, the email reads like this. So I've kind of edited some bits out, but it says, Dear me. Um, as you hold Meta Platforms Inc. shares, we're obliged to let you know that Tutanota LLC has announced its intention to buy up to 160,000 shares of Meta Platforms by way of a mini tender. This is when a personal company tries to buy less than 5% of another company at a fixed price. If you take part in the tender offer, you would agree to sell your shares to Tutanota Inc. at uh, $260 per share. Uh, so far, so good, right? The price has just gone below 200 but so I can see that there might be some attraction to trying to sell them at 260 But the email carries on. Tutanota LLC will only go ahead if the Meta Platforms Inc. share price is above $260 when it completes. They can keep the offer running indefinitely and you can't cancel your instruction. So if you take part in the offer, Tutanota LLC could hold your instruction indefinitely. The key points we want to raise are you could sell your shares at a lower price than you could get on the market at the time. You can't change your mind. You won't know when Meta Platform shares will be tendered or when you'll get your money back. The proceeds are likely to be treated as US income and subject to US withholding tax. Uh, and Tutanota LLC technologies are not linked to Meta Platforms. Ever seen one of these before, Steve? Uh, I haven't. Um, when you sent it to me, it was quite interesting. I mean, we had a we had a quick look around all the other various people they'd failed to try this offer with. Um, but to me, it just seems like the worst deal ever. And why the hell would you make it? It's a very good question. So the email did also warn me that this is something that people try and use to exploit unexperienced investors. And my thought process when I read it went like this. Uh, my instinct was, no, I don't want to sell this at 260. I think I'm planning on holding on to this until it goes past 260 and so on. Uh, and then my immediate thought was, well, actually, if I sold it now, I could buy the thing back at less than 260. So why the hell not? Uh, and then I realized that they're only willing to complete this if its share price is above 260, which means it's like a kind of option that you can't win on, from what yeah. I can see of it. If the share price goes above 260, you can sell it at 260. If not, they can keep the offer running indefinitely, so you can't sell them anything else. Um, and as far as I can see, there seems to be no upside for someone participating in one of these. I mean, we had a look and we saw they've tried these things with a bunch of other companies and pretty much all the other companies they've um, tried this on have issued instructions or advice to shareholders to not participate, basically. So Tell Salesforce them to was one example. Yeah, pretty much that, yeah. Um, so we don't offer advice on this show particularly, but you'll be unsurprised to hear that I didn't see the upside to this and I'm uh, not participating uh, no, in this I don't particular see it either. offer. I don't see a point at all. 
Um, so if that shows up anywhere on your brokerage, we'd be interested to hear in the comments. But um, for the time being, uh, I can't really see much of an attraction to that. But that was something interesting that happened this week. It was worth thinking about while my stocks kind of go down. And I try and distract myself with the opportunity to, when they recover, sell them for less than they've recovered too. I just don't see that. That's, that to me just seems like a deal that you can't possibly win. So they're only willing to buy it at two sixty. Or but on the you know if it runs up to two eighty, you have to sell it for two sixty. So yeah, um, we're not allowed to give advice here. But if it happened to me, I would tell them to go stick it where the sun doesn't shine. Hmm. I'm not doing that because I have to ring them up to tell them to do that. Because mm. so uh, I'll just sit quietly and not participate. Oh, I'd like in that. Situation. Please put on record. <laughs> Please put a little note next to the, my reply. <laughs> <laughs> anyway we've got loads on this show we've got some earnings we've got a game we've got all the usual things just no poll this time uh but first of all i have put together another advert for our sponsor because they're important to us and they stuck quite a lot of money into us so they get this kind of thing this week's advert comes in the form of a poem steve uh, i thought i would try my hand at some poetry and it's not like one of those deep and meaningful poems where it doesn't rhyme um but this poem goes like this you can download this app on your phone and find out all about what you own. Enjoy all its features, it's a really good teacher, and you can use it while you're sat on the throne. Genuine Impact is the name of the app, to stop your investing mishaps. It can help you find stocks, think outside the box, while avoiding those deep value traps. Paul once invested in a cow, but he isn't here right now, so I can confidently say with Genuine Impact in play, he knows better about what to buy and how. I like to buy stocks that are cheap, my thinking is not all that deep. Genuine Impact helps me, you can try it for free, so the learning curve feels a bit less steep. And Steve D likes to buy things that grow. He doesn't like things with cash flow. His portfolio ascends because Genuine Impact's his friend, so if you'd like to try, link below. The end. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He's now a poet, a writer, a marketer. Mm. <laughs> there is... There's no limit to the things I won't write down for money, so it seems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you enjoyed that, let me know in the comments. I'll try something else. I've got like another five of these to try and think of or something like that. Mm. So uh, if you sort of heard a scraping sound while I put those together, I feel like this might be the way for me to go in the future. Anyway, let's play a game, Steve. Cool. So I've got um, a, a rather hastily put together uh, game because I realised on the drive home that I, um, I only had a half finished one and I hated it. Um, so this is another game and I don't have a very good name for it. So, um, so I, you know, if you've got a good name for it, uh, let us know in the comment section. We'll be glad to hear it. Uh, the working title at the moment is called Famous Investing Quotes. Um, oh, no. So I'm going to read to Steve a series of investing quotes, and I'm going to give him multiple choice because I think it's it's terrifically difficult to to not have uh, multiple choice. And Steve, all you've got to do is tell me out of the three answers I give you, who done it? Cool. Which is what we could have called it. Who done it? Who done it? Mm. So uh, there's literally no point picking numbers because um, there is no point. Um, so I'll just start you off from the top, and I'll roll down. All right. Famous investing quote number one. Someone's sitting... Oh, bloody hell. I nearly said shitting. <laughs> Let's start again. There's one for you, Casper. Uh, someone's sitting in the shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. Was that Wazabi? Was it Ben Graham? Or was that Charlie Munger? Hmm. Interesting. So here's a fun fact. I don't have a game that I've built at all. It's my go next week, and I need to think of that between now and then. But the only thing I could think of was a bunch of quotes where I give you choices about who said them. Um, so now I need another idea. Unfortunately, I didn't get around to looking up any of these quotes. Uh, my instinct with that one is that that's a Ben Graham quote. Hmm. <laughs> You're incorrect. Dear. That is a Buffett quote. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I feel like that was the best chance I had all game here. All right, back uh, to one in threes it is. Well, I've, I would already ready to give you a tick. Um, uh, uh, question number two, or saying number two. There's no such thing as a worry-free investment. The trick is to separate the valid worries from the idle worries and then check the worries against the facts. Is that Peter Lynch? Is it Warren Buffett? Or is it Bill Ackman? 
That sounds to me like it's probably Bill Ackman. It's not a quote I recognise, and I've heard, <laughs> in spite of the first question, um, I've heard quite a few Warren Buffett quotes. There are quite a lot around, mind you. Uh, and I've heard some Peter Lynch quotes, mostly that one about being amazed at every, uh, how many people own stocks and stuff. Hmm. Um, my instinct then would be Good Bill song. Ackman. Good song, that. Um, <laughs> you would be... Incorrect. Oh it's not Ackman. It's actually Lynch. Um, um, it's it's a it's a fairly famous um, saying from, but it's not in any of his speeches. So, thing is, if if people are only you know seeing Lynch's speeches, uh, I think it's in One Up on Wall Street. This one. Um, if you've not read it, you would oh, probably not have much chance of uh... read actual books and stuff. <laughs> um, okay, number three. The difference between successful people. And really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. Was that Warren Buffett? Was it Ben Graham? Or was it Howard Marks? I. Hmm. I think I have heard this one at some point. Um. And the trouble is, it's the kind of thing that Warren Buffett has said a few times, but it's not the question of. Is this the kind of thing that Warren Buffett says? His question is, did he say exactly this? So he talks a lot about how um, he most of his day involves saying no to various opportunities, much like I do when you send me stocks and DMs and stuff. Mm. Um, I'm glad he didn't put Charlie Munger in there, otherwise I'd have been really confused. Uh, the middle one was Ben Graham? Yep. Mm. Tempted by Buffett on this one, but I feel like this could be a trick. Let's try Buffett. You would be incorrect. This is because you wasted all of your luck last week on your clean sweep or whatever mm, it was. Yep. Um, okay, next question. Success uh, who was that, sorry? It was Howard Marks. Uh, okay. Um, successful investing is about managing risk, not avoiding it. Was that Brian Feroldi? Was it Ben Graham? Or was it David Gardner? Gosh, what a set of people. Um, I Hmm. Successful investment about managing risk. I my instinct is it's one of the motley fools here. Um, by which I mean not Ben Graham. Um, hmm. Ben Graham, of course, was like pretty much risk averse. Uh, he's kind of famous for having an idea that you should basically just try and buy stuff that's trading below its working capital because the risk there is pretty much zero. Even if the thing gets kind of liquidated, you're going to be okay. Um, hmm. Brian Feroldi. Brian Feroldi, oh, he'd be really good to have on the podcast, wouldn't he? Um, he would, wouldn't he? Yeah, so would David Gardner. Uh, Brian Feroldi has some really, really interesting things to say, I think. And he has some really, really nice, um, I guess, just basically pictures. I was going to say diagrams, but I think they are just basically images and pictures and stuff hmm. that kind of illustrate some of the stuff he's talking about very, very nicely. Let's try David Gardner, though. You would be? Incorrect. Yeah. It's actually Ben Graham. Oh wow! Uh, it's from his uh, his famous value investing for dummies book. <laughs> that is uh, that's a really nicely written question. Then mm. props on that one. Success means being very patient but aggressive when it's time. Was that Charlie Munger, Bill Ackman, or Kathy Wood? Uh, hmm. These a lot of these things sound a bit like platitudes, to be honest. So they could be almost any of these. Um, being very patient but aggressive when it's time. It's uh, it's something that Charlie Munger believes in, but it doesn't sound like his way of saying things. I mean, he's kind of famous for. So I've been listening to some of his stuff lately, as you know. Um, he's famous for kind of thinking you only get a few opportunities. And it's important to seize them. Um, Bill Ackman, I don't listen to very much. Um, Charlie Munger, Bill Ackman, Kathy Wood. Hmm. The use of the word aggressive is putting me off a bit here. Let's try Bill Ackman. You would be. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh dear. Don't worry, Steve. I've got some easy ones coming up. Uh, it's actually, it is actually Charlie Munger. You were, you were thinking in the right, um, down the right mm. lines. Um, it is a, it is a, it is a, a Mungerism. And actually, when you think about it, he means aggressive in in a number of ways, i.e. Mm. i.e. buying preferred dividends and also selling yep. selling debt at quite a, a an expensive uh, kind of thing. So, 
Hmm. Next one is investing is a business where you can look very silly for a long period of time before being proven right. Was that Bill Ackman? Was it David Gardner? Or was it Paul from Everything Money? <laughs> Gosh. Um, investing is a business where you can look very silly for a long period of time before being proven right. Uh... Who was the first one you offered me, sorry? Bill Ackman, David Gardner, or Paul Thank from you. Everything Money. Hmm. It doesn't feel like a David Gardner thing, because most of the time he gets proven right, I think, by stuff. Uh, so mostly, I mean, he tends, I think, and I think he's fairly upfront about this thought, that he tries to outperform the market um, over time by generally being involved with the market and outperforming when it's going up and underperforming when it's going down and relying on the fact that it sort of mostly goes up in order to, on balance, finish ahead. Um, so it matters how much you win and lose by, not just how often you win or lose. Um, I'd be surprised if that was Paul from Everything Money uh, with that particular idea. Um, <laughs> uh, which leaves me with Bill Ackman, was it? Yeah. The other option? Yeah, let's try him then. He must have said something. I'll keep going for him on these. Correct. Hey. It was Bill Ackman. Um, yeah, I thought um, that might be interesting to throw David Gardner in. Now, obviously, Paul from Everything Money, his famous quote is that uh, NVIDIA can only grow at 6% at a PE of 12. Um, mm. So, yeah. Um, next one was um, make your portfolio reflect your best vision of the future. Was this Cathy mm -hmm. Wood? Was it David Gardner? Or was it Stanley Druckenmiller? Uh, I would say fairly swiftly that I think that's David Gardner, and here is why. I think this is something you'd do, or at least you've in some ways set your portfolio up to avoid things that are not part of your best vision of the future. And I don't think you'd take advice from Kathy Wood or Stanley Druckenmiller, um, so I would suggest this is David Gardner. Correct. It is a David Gardner. Um, I didn't know whether mm -hmm. I could throw you with, with having Kathy Wood in there as well, because that's kind of the lines Absolutely that she would not. Um, you might You might have been able to convince me on Druckenmiller, but um, mm. <laughs> no. Druckenmiller normally talks about blood and guts, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> um, I was going to say something terrible then, but I'm not Paul, so I'll just skip the, the eating children line. Um, oh, <laughs> corrections are good. They keep us all humble. The strongest bull markets I've been in are built on walls of worry. Was that Kathy Wood? Was it Bill Ackman? Or was it Paul Briscoe? <laughs> Paul Briscoe saying things about the strongest bull markets he's been in, huh? Making YouTube videos I, for a I just figured this 25 was, minutes. This was quite hard, so we'd have to make it a bit easier later on. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, it's a pity there isn't one uh, that's a terrible joke or something that could be Paul Briscoe or uh, <laughs> my portfolio is more burgundy than red or something like that. The terrible but... joke that is Paul Briscoe. <laughs> <laughs> he won't listen to this. Yeah, he won't, no. He would have loved my advert as well. Um, one of the other two. Uh, strongest bull markets have been built on walls of worry. Cathy uh, Woodall, who was the other one? Ackman. Ah, mm. Neither of those sounds particularly right, but Ackman sounds more likely to me. You'd not spotted the trend, uh, because there's no doubles. Um, it oh. is actually... <coughs> Cathy Wood. Uh, number nine. So we're nearly there, Steve. Um, investing yeah. is not nearly as difficult as it looks. Successful investing involves doing a few things right and avoiding serious mistakes. Was that Warren Buffett? Was it John Bogle or was it Aswath de Murderon? Oh dear. Um, I thought I knew who that was before you started speaking. And the name isn't in there. Um, although also you said there are no doubles. So Charlie Munger is not an option uh, in that case. Okay. So avoiding mistakes and doing a few things well. Um, hmm... Bogle strikes me as kind of doing one thing at all, uh, which is buying a Vanguard fund. Let's try Bogle. You would be correct. It is John Bogle. That's one of his famous mm. sayings. His, his, his few things right was uh, literally buy an index and yep. avoid serious mistakes by not buying an index. Um, yeah, that was <laughs> that was his general thing. So we've got uh, last one. 
Um, yep. And this is uh, a f- one of my favorites, especially in markets like today. And it's worrying is like paying a debt you don't owe. Was that Mark Twain? Was it Warren Buffett? Or was it Joel Greenblatt? That's interesting. It's a good phrase, isn't it? Hmm. It feels like it has almost nothing to do with investing necessarily, but worrying is like paying a debt you don't owe. So a few things here. Um, People like Mark Twain are generally good candidates for any particular quote, uh, whether it's about investing or anything else, um, like sitting under trees that other people planted or whatever. Hmm. Uh, Worrying is like paying a debt you don't owe. It's quite financial, though, isn't it? Hmm. Mm. Let's try Mark Twain. You have finished off with her. Correct. Well then, Steve. Um, I would take that in four, the end. Four out of ten. It was a, it was an almighty yeah. comeback. Um, mm. I thought I had you on the ropes, five in. Um, but like Hillbrook, I couldn't get you uh, knocked out. <laughs> yeah, that was good fun. I enjoyed that. But uh, yeah, I would absolutely have taken four out of ten before we started. And it feels like I missed the easy ones. Uh, it feels like I missed the ones I should have known because I didn't think they were quite right. I thought it was a bunch of people trying to talk like Buffett who weren't Buffett. Um, but see, yeah, there there's only are. ten there. There's plenty of opportunity to get me back next week when Paul probably isn't here again. Yeah, we'll see. Um, maybe I'll ask you. Which, oh, I've got my idea for a new game. Don't <laughs> worry, it's fine. It doesn't. It may or may not work if Paul's here, but I will figure that out in a little bit. Anyway, um, the next thing we've got is some news from the UK because this is a playing footsie or foot Steve show. Uh, we like to talk about UK things when Paul's not around, making us talk about Tesla all the bloody time. Um, so, Steve, what's been happening that has caught your eye in the UK? Um, so, uh, we, the, the, our biggest broker in the um, UK is Hargreaves Lansdowne. I think they have just over 40% market share of, um, of our investing market. Uh, they reported their earnings this week and subsequently lost about a fifth of its market cap after reporting some fairly shoddy numbers. Um, hmm. Trading revenue was down 30%, which led to a 3% drop in overall revenue. And profits fell um, sharply with them too, um, down 20% year on year to 151 million. And net inflows also fell 28% as well, although they're on the back of a bumper year, so I would be less uh, less worried about that. Um, I had a quick listen to the earnings call. Um, Hill, who is the CEO, um, he, he said that uh, he's attempting to win back investors with plans to redefine wealth management in the UK because we need another one of them. Uh, Hargreaves' Mm. share price is about 30% lower than it was uh, a year ago today, and uh, it was down at about another 15% on mid-morning on Tuesday. So Hill said, now is the right time to target the broader wealth management market. He's going to invest around $175 into this uh, market. He thinks uh, he's going to capitalize on a key inflection point in the UK's wealth. And uh, its new advice service, which is going to build over the next couple of years, will use the platform's vast trove, which was uh, the Weddle today, of um, customer (laughs) data combined with some human interactions to bridge the gap between self-directed investing and financial advice. So what basically... um, Hagrid's answer CEO said was that um, they've not been invested in their technology, they've fallen somewhat behind, and they're just starting to get their kicking uh, probably where they deserve it. Um, mm-hmm. Steve, you're a Hagrid's Lansdowne customer. How do you feel about these earnings? I'm not that worried about these earnings particularly. They house my LISA for what it's worth. So they house a part of my uh, wealth which is... I guess comparatively small in the grand scheme of things because sort of three quarters of my money goes into my ISA and a quarter of it goes into my lifetime one and the lifetime one's sort of done okay but assume it's still about a quarter of the overall thing. Uh, I was listening to what you were saying there and I think this is really important actually. I mean I have for ages now been fed up with the definition of wealth management in the UK. I think that it's been screaming out for someone to come along and redefine wealth management. When I look at the definition of wealth management, I think this is nonsense. I must write to somebody about this immediately. Um, what? What is that about? Well, the thing for me is that ha- for some of Hargreaves Lansdowne stocks, you still have to ring them. 
So mm-hmm. for a company to say that they're going to double down on wealth management, that just sounds like bureaucracy. And it sounds like I'm going to get things mailed to me. I'm going to have to print forms. I'm going to have to fill them in. Um, I, I don't believe that Hargreaves and Down can do this well. And I we're talking as a financial podcast that's desperate for sponsors. Um, I would be shocked to see Hargreaves and Down uh, execute on this and deliver something that the, the fintechs aren't already doing better. Um Everybody here wants, you know, everybody here would be a Hargreaves Amsterdam customer. I think everybody listening would probably be a Hargreaves Amsterdam customer if they just bothered to be a bit more competitive. And they've got this kind of aloof um, opinion of themselves that they think they're, they obviously think they're better than uh, the the other providers. And I think they're fast roaring up the tail. Uh, we saw the U.S. brokers react in the correct way. The minute they saw Robinhood as a threat, they all went, they all changed their policies. They quashed the upstart. Robinhood is 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 a dumpster fire, dumpster fire at the moment. Haggis Lansan just seems to think, ah, these people these people won't leave. I'd be really interested to see what happens when these neo brokers brokers start making a bit of money and and get um get share transfer services all, all, all built up. I wonder what would happen to to Hargreaves and I wonder how fast they'll have to bring these prices down. So the main thing keeping me at Hargreaves Lansdowne at the moment is uh, the fact that they offer a lifetime ISO wrapper and places like Trading212 don't. Um, we had Tom Morgan on the show quite a while ago now actually but one of the things he advised us when we were talking about uh, choosing brokers and he can advise us because he is a financial advisor uh, was to pay attention, amongst other things, to what wrappers they're offering uh, and what those different wrappers do. It feels like this is the kind of thing that places like Trading212 will be driving quite hard to try and uh, introduce because I would happily transfer out of Hargreaves Lansdowne in that situation. They still send me stuff through the post, uh, by which I mean the actual physical post. It was them that sent me the um, email about Meta platforms uh, earlier, so that's, I guess, encouraging that they're on top of that a little bit. This stuff on the gap between self-directed uh, and financial advice strikes me as kind of tricky. Um, with this sort of thing, I kind of associate this as being similar to something I saw NatWest offering, actually, which is similar to uh, the kind of money boxes and that sort of thing where you have a bunch of investment funds that you can stick them into that are higher risk, lower risk, collections of stuff exposed in various different ways. My pension fund actually does this as well and lets you say how much you want in the high growth, low growth bond cash, uh, emerging markets, whatever thing. I mean, is that the kind of thing they're looking at then? They can probably automate this, right? It sounds like they're basically offering video conferencing financial advice. That's the kind of thing they're, oh. they're trying to do. It, they, they think the idea is moving into low-touch um, sort of video conferenced and digital um, financial advice, which I just think doesn't sound very good. Um, I'm not sure that's kind of what, what, people, what people want. Um, just back to your other point about licenses, I think it's really key that um, you're trading two on twos, etc. Open uh, a license and, and swiftly with it. The, the sort of customers they're looking to attract, the young people who will be the rich people in the future, um, and probably the people opening ISAs, especially as there's a time limit on an ISA. Is it 55 or is it 50? Um, uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, so you, 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 it seems strange that these, these sort of companies haven't jumped on the license straight away. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I just, Hargreaves is one of those times when you, you read it and you think you still don't seem to get it. I don't think they do seem to get it. I mean, I always think of Hargreaves Lansdowne as a kind of boomer broker, for what it's worth, which mm. is kind of okay at the moment because boomers are probably where most of the money is, uh, for what it's worth. I mean, if you were choosing a class of assets to manage, I'd probably choose the generation one up from me than me. Uh, they all own houses and stuff. So my sense is that they're probably uh, a more interesting market to go after. But getting stuck like that is obviously a time-limited um, endeavor, I think. It's a, you see, the thing is, it's, it's a name associated with quality, isn't it? The issue is, I think, Hagrid's Lansdowne is a way better name than Trading212. So immediately it looks like a, a more premier offering. And that, that's kind of how it's kind of how it is. It's one of those things now with, with Trading212, two two, they're, not, they're not aiming to be about trading anymore so you would kind of you would kind of think a name change is is something they need to really crack on with i mean they're just they're not interested in trading they're not even the the cfd side of um trading tool is fairly sort of like fairly derided by anybody who's a a serious investor um Mm. yeah i would be really keen to try and swap to a a more sort of quality sounding name than than trading two and two hours them. I think that's the beginning of starting to scoop these customers up. 
I think there might be something about that. I think people are kind of softening up to these ideas a little bit. I mean, before I started investing, before I'd really heard about investing, and possibly before these platforms were really, well, certainly as large as they are now. I mean, the first move for me was kind of looking away from, I guess, kind of traditional banks. So your NatWests and your Lloyds and your Barclays and stuff looking for a better interest rate and out towards things like Paragon and Oldermore and the quote-unquote challenger banks. And from there, I kind of came to be a bit more trusting of Monzo. And there is always a kind of start where you think, are these things really a safe place to put my salary or my savings Mm. or whatever? And as it gradually kind of emerges that increasingly they are, um, it seems like things kind of dry up a little bit for the, um, I guess, the kind of old style of um, banks. And I wonder whether kind of investing platforms or ISA vehicles will go the same way. That's it, really, as well. You've got to think with somebody like Hagrid's Amazon as well, paying a fairly hefty dividend um, out of their, their cash flow. The more um, the more they commit to that dividend, and I think the sort of sort of stage they're at, um, if they didn't commit to that dividend, their share price would, would, would be affected, uh, which makes it harder for them to raise capital. So I think mm. uh, they're in a sort of a really horrible kind of situation at the moment where I think they, they realise they need to change. They perhaps don't realise realize they need to change as much as we think they do um but they're in a sort of position where they could do with a little bit of cash to invest in some tech and get some get some bodies in and actually you know make something that people want to use um hmm. so yeah i wouldn't want to be in charge of hargus right now uh, i don't envy that position at all nor would i it seems like there's an obvious kind of comparison at least in terms of that sort of narrative arc to something like intel that we've talked about for a while hmm. right dominant position for a long time rather sat on it a bit um has cash to do stuff and might pivot and try and do that sort of thing but it's let the kind of upstarts grow a bit bigger than it knows what to deal with for the moment yeah well that's intel have been caught with the pants down haven't they they've been very very good at giving money back to shareholders in in whatever way you see you know in buybacks and and dividends but what they haven't been doing is keeping that technology um keeping that R&D budget sort of um, chugging along. They've been mm. outspent and they've been uh, outdeveloped and now they're in a rush to to catch up and uh, who knows what they'll cut and what they'll lose to get there um, when keeping a steady budget and just doing it properly um, and not being as shareholder friendly uh, probably would have done them the world of good. Mm. Hargreaves Lansdowne's one I've had an eye on historically. I've not looked at it lately, mind you. Um, not one that you've particularly liked from the general shape of the business, I guess. No, no, it's not for me. No. Uh, yeah, stock was down a fair bit earlier this week. It's recovered a little bit today, but still kind of well uh, down for the time being. But it's not just Hargreaves that have been releasing earnings lately. Uh, there's been a few more things this week. We always seem to find some more things um, dripping out earnings gradually, gradually. So sort of two that I had a look at both on the US side were the two um, retail REITs that I own, which were Realty Income and Agree Realty. One is basically a smaller version of the other one, from what I can see of it, with the positives and the negatives that come with it. So Realty Income, uh, they reported a normalised FFO. We tend to look at that number uh, as investors, funds from operations, because their earnings is uh, fairly meaningless uh, when we're dealing with a REIT because they have substantial amounts of depreciation. They can move their earnings number around a little bit as they like. Uh, But their normalised FFO was up 7.5% compared to the fourth quarter a year ago. Their adjusted funds from operations, which basically takes out uh, one-off costs and that sort of thing, uh, was up 11 or so percent. So 89 cents on FFO, 94 cents on uh, AFO. Shares were pretty flat today. They reported last night. Uh, The usual things we expect to see from Realty Income, to be honest. Um, Rent collection was 99.5% over the quarter. Theatres they collected all of their rent from. The one that was struggling a little bit for them was fitness and health uh, centres. They were at 96 and a bit percent, not quite bouncing back in the same way just yet. Occupancy rate of about 98 and a half percent at the end of last year, which was the cutoff point for those earnings. Agree Realty, a broadly similar story. Um, FFO per share was 92 cents, up 10 percent. AFO was at 91 cents, up 9 and a bit percent. Again, pretty flat today and 99.5% of their things occupied. And pretty much that tells you all you need to know about these things. Shares gone nowhere as a result of the earnings, but everything's sort of pushing along steadily. Um, They have buildings, those buildings are occupied, they're collecting rents. Uh, Carry on to the next thing, more or less. Um, Not much to see there, Steve, I don't think. Well, it just really shows you that they're 
really quality offerings, aren't they? And all the troubles that we do have at the moment, all the things going on, these guys are just chugging along with the buildings occupied and they're, they're collecting rent. Um, when I mm. when I first um, started investing, one of the, the stocks I really wanted to invest in was, was Realty Income. Uh, when I first swapped to stock picking um, in free mm-hmm. trade or whenever that was, um, that was that was literally the company that I wanted to buy. That was the one that really forced me to sell off some some ETFs and and have a go at it. And uh, I found out that free trade can't handle REITs in their ISA, and I don't know if they can yet. This they certainly couldn't when I left, um, mm. so I couldn't even do that, which was probably one of the driving factors to get me over to um, to trading two on two in the end. But it's very complex to hold REITs outside of an ISA. It's a bit of a tax. Uh, nightmare for some of them the way they pay um so yeah realty income i think is a really high quality outfit i think it's just been slightly overpriced for 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 a while and it it does look better now um than it than it did and uh, agree realty is basically baby realty income isn't it yeah pretty much um, and it's another really high quality re- and i know you've been speaking about it for at least i think maybe 18 months you've been talking about agree realty possibly something like that yeah they have a bit more insider buying going on than agree realty which I mean, if you're lazy about valuation or you find REITs hard, which I kind of do, um, yeah, big insider buying usually is an encouraging sign. Mm. Yeah, we used to like REIT notes for uh, REITs, but they put everything behind a paywall. That made They made REITs so easy to understand. But unfortunately now, it seems like unless you were a REIT-only investor, there's no, it's just, I can't see why you'd want to buy REIT notes. Um, no, it's not quite there. I can see why. They've got a quality offering, haven't they? Yeah, really but, good, yeah. Uh, there's just a bit too much that's kind of hidden behind paywalls at the moment for it to be that helpful to the kind of um, casual REIT enthusiast, I guess. Exactly. I think most people would only have a small portion of the portfolio dedicated to REIT, so buying a dedicated service for for just valuing and comparing them seems seems like something you're probably probably not going to do. An uninteresting kind of earnings story, I guess, sort of stands out a little bit in this market. I mean, it feels like currently everything's either been missing and going through the floor um, or surpassing expectations and going through the roof uh, in these various cases. But, you know, these two have pushed along steadily and I suppose <laughs> there's not much that you don't already know about them um, either way. I've got one that's uh, absolutely gone through the floor if you'd like me to go through that one. Um, I think you're going to say the one I've got next. Go for it. Uh, yeah, the next one I've got on the list is um, Monday.com. So they are a... Uh, uh, a CRM, it's a, like a low-code CRM that can be tailored to suit the the specific type of organization that you're in. So that is a very sort of high-level view on what they do. But they're a pretty um, a pretty exciting little company, uh, really, really rapidly growing. And this uh, this is Wednesday as we record. Um, is it Wednesday or is it Thursday? It's Wednesday, isn't it? Um, Today's Wednesday. That's right, yeah. And just before US Open, um, they reported some pretty interesting results. So um, I've got them here, so I'll just read them out for you. Uh, fourth um, quarter, uh, 96 million. Um, that was 91% up um, quarter on quarter. So it's a pretty hefty jump. Full year revenue came in at 308 million, which was also a 91% increase year on year. So rapid, rapid growth. Um, 90% gross margins, net dollar retention, 135%. So that's customers that's, that bought from them last year spent 135% more on average. Um, customers with 10 or more, sorry, it's 35% more, sorry, 135. So uh, customers with 10 or more users um, was up um, 60, uh, 72% from 63%. So another uh, another sort of jump shows that companies are starting to sort of adopt it, uh, sort of on a wider on a wider a wider period. Um, the guidance they guided for four hundred and seventy to four hundred seventy five million next year, so that was up from three hundred and eight. So it's a uh, it's about fifty three percent growth this year. Um, so it's it's a little bit smaller. Um, non gap loss of around one hundred and forty five million, which is uh, it's just eye watering, but. Um, I wouldn't worry about it too much. They've only really just IPO'd. They've got about 900 million in cash. So um, there's quite a lot of runway. That's nearly six years, isn't it? So um, Mm -hmm. I work that out as a negative operating margin of about 30%, which, you know, it comes with the territory of the sort of company that it is. Um, Down 20, uh, nearly 25% um, Wednesday day. And this is... um, 
this is the sort of SaaS story that we're, we've come to expect. So this is a quality operator. It's had a, a large portion of its growth pulled forward or what we think could be a large portion of its growth pulled forward. Um, I think they've sandbagged this growth a little bit. I would expect them to beat it fairly comfortably. Um, I'm pretty excited about Monday.com. I think it's a pretty good company. It's in my um, my money incinerator pie. Um, mm-hmm. Steve, I assume this is nowhere near your wheelhouse. It's not that near my wheelhouse, but I've got a couple of things later on that are nearer by. Uh, so you mentioned a couple of things there. They've got some really. So one thing I was really interested in is the kind of key performance indicators that we like talking about here. So this kind of varies from business to business. It might be same store sales. It might not be that. It might be same store sales. Uh, if you have a retailer, um, it might be average revenue per user. If you're a platform, so on, so forth. Those sounded pretty impressive uh, for Monday.com, and it's growing like an absolute weed, and yet it's down quite a lot. So I guess whenever I see this kind of thing, uh, I always sort of wonder to myself, and maybe both of these are true, which is it then? Uh, Was it overpriced before because people got carried away and thought that COVID pulled forward growth would continue forever, which it won't, Um, and there's no shame in thinking that, yes, some of this got pulled forward as businesses shifted to remote work. Um, or is it now just massively undervalued because people have suddenly got their head into their heads that there's a narrative towards quote unquote value stocks? I'm our kind of value minded investor, but even I don't like that expression. Uh, but I'm more interested in cash flows now, uh, dividends now, earnings now. Um, stuff in 10 years is not much interest in this situation. Which do you think here? I mean, is it both or is it one or the other? It's cash today, isn't it? I think that's the big issue with Monday.com mm-hmm. is that people are looking for cash today. Um, it, I mean, it doesn't help that this business came live with, a, I think, um, around a 15 billion valuation. Um, and it got as high as $444, which is um, that's roughly three times what it is today. So it could have got as high as 20 billion valuation at one point. Um, so, yeah, that, that to me uh, smacks of it being uh, quite, quite heavily overpriced. Um, but it's coming down, and that's uh, it's mm. now getting to the sort of ranges. I think the market cap, uh, as of right now, um, I'm just looking, it's down 28%. Um, the market cap at the moment is at $5.61 billion. Um, so it's getting to around sort of 10 times next year's sales, which for a company that grows mm-hmm. at the sort of speed <clears throat> this is, uh, those metrics improve rapidly. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting for me. I mean, I wouldn't bet your house on it. Um, uh, I would just keep an eye on this one and and see what you think so i'm also keeping an eye on this i guess i mean there's stuff in this wheelhouse that i'm keeping an eye on and i have started trying to think about because i suspect a correction into quote unquote value to be coming uh even if i'm not sure that it's fully there yet or has a full way to run yet um i'm trying to pencil in with these things what i think these net margins look like eventually Uh, or these operating margins look like eventually, right? So 90% is a huge gross margin, uh, which tells me that the operating margin is likely to be somewhere reasonably high. Um, It's going to be at least 30, I would guess, probably slightly higher than that. And Mm. if you're interested in trying to work out, as I am, how far these things have come down uh, and when they start reaching the point of, okay, now when are we kind of sinking into deep value territory versus just losing the the over-exuberance off the top, I guess you can try and start working out how to price your way into this with a few different ideas about what that margin might look like. So here's what it looks like if they manage an operating margin of, let's say, 50%, which is a pretty good operating margin, Mm. versus if that comes out at 25, versus if that comes out at 30 and somewhere in between. And then you have a thing to think about of kind of, well, how soon are they going to turn themselves to profitability? I don't know the answer to that question, but you can also start mapping out that kind of thing if you're interested in doing some sort of Fairly serious, admittedly slightly speculative um, efforts at valuation here. And once it starts coming out at a price that's below all of these numbers that you can think of and you start thinking, well, look, I only need this thing to achieve a sort of 20% margin and I can wait four years for it. Hmm. Um, Then it starts looking like a buy. I mean, I was listening to, believe it or not, I was listening to quotes from famous people this week. Um, Charlie Munger was saying uh, that The Economist uh, Maynard Keynes was saying, look, it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong about these things. So, yeah, while I don't know an awful lot about these things, there is a number it would fall below where I think, I don't need to be that right anymore. I don't care if I'm in a, I'm out by 20, 30% or so. It's 
still going to be a decent return from here. And that's kind of how I would think about this. I think that's key. Uh, so you could see all the growth you want from these companies, but at some point they have to pivot. And mm. uh, we should have had a little Ross section there, shouldn't we? Ross from Friends shouting pivot because it's just, <laughs> it's just the two of us and Paul can't stop us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at some point they're going to have to pivot to growth. And what tends to happen then, the sad, the sad fact of American capitalism is, is that they tend to fire half of their sales staff and marketing staff and research and development staff and start to focus on uh, transitioning to the... Uh, to the bottom line. Uh, but I wouldn't expect that to happen for Monday.com for a while. And to be honest, uh, any company growing at, I mean, they're guiding for gro a growth of 53%. I would suspect it'd be more than that. But even any company growing above sort of 15, 20%, you really don't want them optimized for profit. You want them really, really driving that, that revenue growth because when they do eventually optimize for profit, they're going to be um, profitable on a much larger number. And uh, I guess we'll see this a little bit more with um, Teladoc, which we have some earnings uh, on a little bit later because they're just starting this little pivot to cash flow and it's interesting to mm. see uh, the leverage of the flywheel starting to come through. But I'll pass back to you, Steve. Um, who have you got on your list next? We have a nice little spectrum of things coming up here. So next on my list is Blackboard, uh, which is a company that um, we haven't talked about much on this show. They were the company that I speculated when we were doing the start of year predictions might get bought by somebody. So what they are is a software as a service company, and they specialize in providing software for the non-profit sector. So if you need tech to manage your donors or organizing a fundraising event or something like that, they um, have what they consider to be the best in the business there. They're now being competed with by Salesforce's, uh, I was going to say non-profit arm. Salesforce absolutely is a profit arm, but Salesforce is arm that's catered towards non-profits uh, for these sorts of things. The Blackboard hasn't fared that well. They lost 15 cents a share in their last uh, quarter, but that was because of a one-off hit that I haven't managed to figure out just yet. Adjusted, they pulled in 75 cents a share, which is sort of okay-ish. Revenues were 247.9 million, up from 242. So they're not growing super, super fast there. They're in a, a still, still a growth phase um, in around the, what we're looking at there, something percent, something low percent. Um, but that's, yeah, not a huge growth rate from them. They... Guided for $2.63 to $2.82 per share in 2022 on revenue of 1.08 to 1.1 billion, which applies, it kind of implies a sort of low to mid 20s price earnings ratio. They're down 22% year to date, down another 6% on today's earnings. Um, they have a bit of a catalyst coming up. Reopening should help them. More people organizing kind of uh, galas and fundraisers and outdoor events should be a good thing for them. But they're struggling a little bit, and I wonder when they start getting into kind of value-ish territory or the kind of territory mm. that I might start taking an interest in the map. Yeah, they're interesting. Um, they're, they're in. They're, they're getting sort of um, baby with the bathwater, I think, at the moment, aren't they? I think that's, mm. that's the kind of... Um, that's the kind of market we're in, I think, with the, these SaaS companies. They, they, they're going down in sympathy. They're going down with, like tiny misses on eps when they're not even trying to make eps um it's it's a very strange kind of environment and the issue that we have and um, we've spoke about this before steve i'm not sure if we spoke about it on the podcast is that these companies look really attractive at the moment and you could buy them um today knowing that you've probably got them at a very good price they fall 10 15 and somebody wipes them out with a 10 percent premium um, mm. you still lose money. So yep. um, I would think that a hell of a lot of these companies are looking very, very attractive to a lot of bigger name companies. I'm thinking these Salesforce, these Twilio's, by the way, people with a lot of cash on hand uh, or access to a good amount of debt or high market caps that they can issue um, shares and, and, and dilute themselves. There's a hell of a lot of very, very good decent looking um software companies that you could you could scoop up with with uh with only minor hits to the balance sheet and and that's a problem for us consolidation for uh, for somebody who's after these little under sub 10 billion market caps consolidation in the industry is is a bit of an issue what do you think steve i kind of share that a little bit because on in theory i kind of like this idea of um smallish fairly niche things that are in that kind of area of to 
big to be kind of bought, um, but too small to be worth someone like Salesforce setting up to compete with, because what you would add by trying to take their business is not enough to justify the cost of the setup. As they start falling, um, they lose their too big to be bought thing and they become potential acquisition targets, which is fine if you're interested in buying them now. I mean, that's a kind of an upside of a sort. Um, it's less good if you own them. I don't, by the way, own uh, Blackboard shares, but I do own some other things that are down 20, 30, perhaps a bit more than that percent, uh, whatever Stoneco's at now, so probably about 98% or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. I do occasionally have this thought that goes through my head that says someone might buy Stoneco at a price that is well above its current market cap and takes me out about 15% down um, based on where I kind of invested into it. And unless it's Berkshire Hathaway, because I own them, uh, it probably is not going to be Berkshire Hathaway, uh, that's going to be bad for me, I think, on balance. Yeah, and I think that's that's our I think that's our primary fear, really, is um, for me, the small cap pie, I, well, the money incinerator pie, as it's now known, um, <laughs> has got a lot of companies in there that I really, really think will... Um, will go on to do um, great things. The issue I have with uh, some of the stocks, like for instance, things like Nanox at the moment is about under 500 million. I mean, that is a, that's a cough. That's a cough to something like Johnson and Johnson. Uh, so it's an accidental drop of a pen for um, mm. Bristol Myers Squibb or, or something like that. They, they, they would, they do more than that in buybacks. So, you know, we're we're hoping that Nanox is a real thing and ends up being a hundred extra ten. But the reality of the matter is, um, the minute this is proven to be true and works and FDA approved, they're going to have people sniffing around them with a very easy out for management. And we're such small shareholders that even if we didn't want it to happen, uh, we are going to end up with shares of Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think even Paul's selling his Johnson & Johnson shares for what it's worth. If he were here, I would ask him. Uh, but never mind, we'll put that one on the list to ask Paul when he gets back. If anyone's watched a Paul video lately, as you can tell, we're avid fans. Um, <laughs> do let us know in the comments if he's mentioned anything about selling J&J. &J. Paul uh, hasn't done a recent video. Um, his his fans will let you know in the comment. I don't think Paul's done a video for about three years. So, oh, um, wow. Yeah. So I think he's still he's, mourning he's, the cow. Taking his lessons from Casper then for the time being, huh? <laughs> okay. Um, all right, let's talk about Teladoc uh, for a little bit then. Um, lead us out on this. We both own Teladoc now. Um, I think this is one where my average price is lower than yours, but let's... Uh, yeah, um, I would, where I would imagine at? it is. My average price, I think I'm down 60-something percent. Um, Not down that. So Teladoc, um, I think it's probably the most bearish stock i've seen for a long time it, it can't seem to do anything that makes the market happy with it uh oh more customers down you go son uh, oh <laughs> more revenue beating guidance and expectations we'll just put you down six percent um and that was kind of what this quarter was like uh, let's let's not let's not say this was the best quarter you've ever seen from teledoc um they are very much in this scenario where they've had a lot of growth pulled forward um, you literally couldn't go to the doctors and Teladoc was one of your only outs. So they, like Zoom, have had a massive amount of their growth pulled forward. Um, but here's the stats. 554.2 million in revenue this quarter. Uh, they beat guidance and expectations by about 2% on the midpoint. Uh, they now have 53.6 million paid US members, which again beat estimates. They generated 77.1 million in adjusted EBITDA, beating estimates, and they lost 0.07 cents per share um, and quite easily beat guidance and um, and estimates. And I think that was probably, I think they beat them by almost 50 cents. So, so a pretty decent quarter. So let's just shift on to the guidance. They guided for 2.6 billion next year, and they think they'll generate about 342.5 million of adjusted EBITDA. And that was actually lower than expectations. But realistically, I don't understand how an analyst predicts how this business is going to grow. And the way that it grows is quite lumpy in that it works with insurance companies. So there, there'll be no massive growth in the revenue if they can't bring an insurance company on. There's also no way of guessing when that insurance company would actually come online. So it, it's very difficult to predict. I don't envy anybody who does. 
Um, 194 million uh, in 2021 from cash flow from operations. Um, Teladoc has just under 900 million in cash on hand, about 1.2 billion of um, total long-term and convertible debt. They're implying growth of between 25 and 30 percent a year, which to me again feels sandbagged, but I guess we'll have to see on that. Um, one of the things I see on the Discord a few times is that people think the stock-based compensation is incredibly egregious. And it's um, it's probably because of the Livongo merger that people didn't realise that that vested over a period of time. Um, so whilst the stock-based compensation looks pretty pretty terrible, and they're going to do $300 million um, worth of uh, stock-based compensation this year, that's actually only 25 to 3%. So it's only about 1% away from where I would be uh, nonplussed about it. So um, I, in a growth stock, especially something like Teladoc, which is not fully cash positive at the moment or not, not net income positive, around 2% guidance, uh, around 2% stock-based compensation helps them attract the, the best talent around without, um, without losing um, too much money. And um, 25 to 3%, I don't think that's particularly uh, particularly terrible for Teladoc. Um, is there anything in there that you thought was particularly bad, Steve? No, nothing in there particularly worried me. I take the point that the stock-based comp is worth keeping an eye on. Um, and it's important at this stage. I guess I take my cue from Bill Mann over at Motley Fool here, who wasn't talking about Teladoc. He was talking about a different um, company. I think he was talking about Mercado Libre, actually, uh, who said, when you kind of look back over the last couple of years, uh, so think about the pandemic years, and indeed now to an extent, what would you have had this company do? Would you have had this company make as much money as you can? Or would you have had it get as big as it can? Um, and I think looking backwards, we'd probably say the latter uh, in this situation. Or at least if you're going to own Teladoc, I think you need to be at least comfortable with the idea that they think the right thing for them to do uh, is the second of those things. So there's not much sense, I think, in owning this and starting to wonder why we're not turning profits just yet or anything like that. Um, that's not to say you can't make a meaningful go at working out hang on, that's run up too high uh, in a certain fashion. And it does feel to me a little bit like Teladoc in the kind of depths of the pandemic people. I definitely heard people saying, that's it. This is basically all the kind of, uh, all that going to the doctor is ever going to be in the future. A bit like everyone's going to communicate on Zoom forever. And you and I and Paul talked about the way we felt Zoom had got carried away uh, with its um, earnings. No doubt uh, it was the case that uh, the pandemic was a catalyst for Zoom and a positive one, but was it worth the kind of levels it was reaching? We thought probably not. Uh, other people thought maybe so, or or just that it would go higher, I suppose. But um, something similar might have been true of Teladoc. It might have run a bit far, a bit fast. It merged with Livongo at an interesting time. We've talked about that kind of merge before. Um, it feels like a heavy price for Livongo, but I mean, one thing I note is that when I think about the kind of Livongo shares must have been somewhere near their highs at the time they were kind of taken out by um, Teladoc there, or merged, I suppose, with Teladoc. I'm not sure the structure of that deal, but so were Teladoc's shares, of course, um, pretty expensive at the time. Uh, so if that was partly a kind of stock-based deal, um, I guess shares in the new company would have been as expensive as the Livongo ones going out. That's it, yeah. That's, uh, that's how it is, isn't it? I think we hmm. sort of... Agree. I think it's quite easy to see that they had they almost had to take Lebongo out because the fear was that somebody else would get it, and it was it's sort of mission critical to to TDOC to be able to offer the sort of the, the sort of holistic service that they want to yep. offer. Um, the I still don't think they're fully realizing the synergies from that deal either, for what it's worth, which is where I think the the, the major growth uh, is coming from. The actual. Um, the revenue from BetterHelp, which is something that they bought for, um, I think it was under 50 million, uh, that's actually generated 700 million uh, in revenue um, last year, uh, which is about, it's getting on for uh, well, a third quarter of the sales. So um, that's quite impressive from something that they spent very little on. So you would hope that they'll be able to take the lessons that they've applied in integrating BetterHelp and uh, and obviously um, putting that into, um, into Livongo. So... I think the story's still really long for for Teladoc. I think there's there's plenty of time for sentiment to change on this stock. Um, at the moment, it's trading at four times forward sales. Um, 
it's just dropped under 10 billion. It's growing at um, 25 to 30% a year. It's got 60% gross margin. Uh, I just picked out uh, just a quick saying from uh, Marla Murphy, who is the, um, she's a CFO for Teladoc, and she just said, the timing of our client onboarding will be second half weighted, partially due to the large, uh, the launch of large new health plans signed on over the last several months, such as Florida Blue. We expect a 40 to 50 million sequential step up between the first and second quarters with a larger sequential revenue ramp through 2022. EBITDA will expand sequentially as well as it follows the revenue ramp. This ramp is not dependent on new sales, but on signed contracts, which gives us good visibility. Um, so this means that any sort of new or large sales will provide mm. some upside to the guidance. And she also just finished by saying, we are seeing all of the right trends to realize our chronic care growth target. I'm very comfortable with the growth rates and expectations we have set. I mean, to me, that just sounds like they're uh, they're telling you they've sandbagged the shit out of the guidance and they're going to smash it. But um, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Remind me, as a, a last thing on Teladoc then, is Teladoc in your penalty box at the moment or is this something you're thinking about leaning into? It was in my penalty box until I went through these earnings and I thought, this is a smashing company and perhaps I would be wise uh, with April just around the corner just to bring the mm. average price down a touch. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Um, I think I sort of feel the same way, although there's quite a lot on my screen that's attracting me at the moment, uh, mm. which... Teladoc is included in that category. Stoneco is always in that category at the moment, I think, because I seem to be able to buy Stoneco shares without it ever taking up very much of my portfolio, which is um, uh, an interesting and kind of undesirable feature. It feels, mm. I, I mean, it, I think it might have somehow managed to acquire Kirkland Lake or something like that. It's buy one, get one free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you all very much for listening. That's our show for this week. Uh, please do leave us some comments in the uh, chat below. Um, leave us a nice review, and um, we'll see you next time, maybe with Paul, maybe not, but who cares? This time it was just the two of us. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>